ahead. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Didn't snow on us yet. I never, I've, I've never taken uh, the scare of snow seriously in this town. I've lived here my whole life. Then last year, of course, everyone made a big deal out of it. I'm like, eh. You know, I purposely let the food run down. We're not going to freak out. And then it was terrible. So now I'm actually nervous <laughs> the way everyone's talking. Kids, we're going to go to Fred Meyer after church and buy new snow boots. Just kidding. Don't we all know that, people? Does anyone know that person where, like, one little snowflake comes falling down out of the sky and they start, like, buying shotgun shells and canned goods? <laughs> all right, well, this morning we are about to approach a section of Mark that is actually extremely difficult. Now, I say that, of course, they're all extremely difficult, but if you uh, know anything about this portion, uh, chapter 13 is called the Olivet Discourse because uh, Jesus gives a lengthy discourse on the Mount of Olives while overlooking the temple. And this section uh, proves a lot of the things that Jesus, uh, the issues that Jesus had with the scribes of his own day. Uh, Mark chapter 13 is exactly what modern scribes uh, do with the text that the scribes of Jesus' day did. It is misinterpreted, it is misapplied, it is used to freak people out. Um, If you have ever heard uh, anything about the rapture or the um, tribulation or these things, and you ever wondered where the idea comes from, the idea generally comes from the Olivet Discourse. Luckily, luckily, we have been going through Mark chapter by chapter by chapter. And so it's going to be easy, I think, to show that the context of Mark uh, reveals that Mark chapter 13 is about something very, very different than uh, most commentators and most theologians um, that are popular in our own day say that it means. So this is a difficult section. We're going to do it in three sermons, actually. We're going to do the whole chapter in three sermons. There is a ton that could lead us astray, but I'm going to be vigilant, and we are going to march on. I'm not going to spend three weeks telling you all the things it's not about, but all the things it is about. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for a a book that is uh, easy enough for an eight-year-old to read and understand, and yet complicated and deep and rich enough um, for us to devote our entire lives uh, to reading it and, and meditating on it and learning from it. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you for his continued ministry. We pray, Lord God, that you would go before us today, that you would give us insight and understanding, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us hearts and minds that seek to know you and know your truth better. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity as I teach through this, and I pray, Lord, that we would all be edified and our faith would be fed and strengthened. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, the Olivet Discourse is unique in Mark because it is the longest uninterrupted course of private instruction. Mark is all about Jesus, the man of action. Jesus goes here. Jesus goes there. Jesus heals this person. Jesus does this. Jesus attacks that person. Jesus feeds this person. It's a breathless gospel. And it's the action movie gospel, as Peter Lightheart calls it, because it's just Jesus doing, 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 doing. So when, when Mark actually takes the time to record very carefully a very lengthy discourse by Jesus, it, it, what that does is raises its level of importance um, in the minds of his readers. Oh, wow, 
Mark is actually going to tell us a great deal of what Jesus taught. And what Mark chooses to record at length and what he doesn't is very telling. And, it, and, and, and the problem with the harmony of the gospel way of doing the gospels is that it rips all the different sections of the gospels apart and puts them together in this chronological order. And what you lose is context, context, context. Mark, right, he did not give us the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew did. He gave us a very lengthy discourse on the destruction of the temple. And, and that is very, very important to understand what he, why he did that. And that's what we're going to look at. Why did he choose to include this lengthy speech? Now, there are several themes here that we've been looking at for several weeks. First, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a conquering king, but got to the temple after the temple was already closed for business, after its work had ceased. That was in Mark 11, 1 through 14. That's the triumphal entry. Jesus comes to the temple, and the temple is closed for business. And boy, is it. That's the point he's making. It is closed. Then Jesus addresses both a fig tree and the temple's fruitlessness, condemning both in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 26. The fig tree, of course, is a metaphor for God's presence amongst his people and his blessing on them. It says in Deuteronomy that every man in Israel who is blessed will sit under his own fig tree. The fig tree is a symbol of God's blessing, and Jesus comes and finds a fig tree with no fruit on it. He goes into the temple, and he finds no fruit in that either. He halts the liturgical practices of the temple. He goes into the court of the Gentiles, where there's supposed to be Gentiles worshiping, and what does he find? He finds people selling animals and exchanging money, profiting themselves. In, in, in the very place in the temple where they're supposed to have Samaritans and Romans and people from all over the world worshiping God. It's a fruitless temple. Jeremiah 7, which was read for us today, I, and, and the point of that was what I said last week. When, when the New Testament writers mention a verse from an Old Testament book, how many of us go back and actually read the section that the verse comes from? Not many. I, I honestly don't. Right? Because I'm trying to get through John because I've got to check the boxes on my reading list. Right? I don't got time to find out what Psalm 110 was about. I've got to move on. But why I had that, had that extremely lengthy section read for us today is because it's as if Mark used it as an outline for the last three chapters. I mean, Jesus calls it a den of robbers. And the reason is because is he wants you to go back and look at Jeremiah 7. And Jeremiah 7 is the context in which he is now using that verse. The temple is bad, and the temple has got to go. It has become a den of brigands. Then Jesus, after he leaves the temple, aligns himself and his authority with the anti-establishment ministry of John the Baptizer. Remember John the Baptizer. He, he was the son of a priest, which means he was a priest. But where do we find him? Not at the temple, but in the wilderness. Right? This is what anti-establishment means. He's saying he rejected the temple and its system. He was out in the woods, and he was gathering the new people of God. And that is who Jesus aligns himself with. Right? He doesn't come into the temple and say, Oh, my people, I've missed you. You've waited all this time. We're together. He comes there, and he insults them and assaults them. And then when they ask him questions about it, he says, No, my people are John, who you killed. The one that you put to death to please a pole dancing prostitute. Right? I'm of him. 
Jesus then goes on and tells a parable about a vineyard that is led by corrupt officials who murder the landlord's son. And he asks rhetorically at the end of that story, what will the landlord do to them? Right? What is the landlord going to come and do to the people who killed his son? And he never answers the question. Not until Mark chapter 13. Right? This, this leading, going into Mark 13, that's what all of these stories are about. He comes to the temple and he is judging it. He's looking around, he's questioning the temple authorities, and what he's doing is making a judgment. Much like when the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, they were just going down there to see if what they heard was really true. Because God isn't going to just rain, rain hellfire down unless he has a couple of witnesses, which is why he sends two angels. So now here Jesus is, he's in the temple, and he wants to find out if it really is as bad as, it, as they say it is. And what is the last story that we found? Here is a widow putting everything she has into the money box. Who's taking care of this widow? Nobody. She's there in the temple putting all of her money in the box <laughs> in a place that should be taking care of her. The place is no good. Okay? It's as if the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah and what they found was what? No good people. And so we're going to have to get rid of this town. Jesus comes to the temple and what does he find? No good people. And so the temple has got to go. Now, all of these threads are dangling there when we come to the Olivet Discourse. This is why reading books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and getting the context is so important. Because he doesn't suddenly, after all of this judgment of the temple, start talking about the end times, the very end of the world. He's talking about the end of someone's time, but not the end of all of our time, if that makes sense. And this is what throws people. There is a world that is being destroyed. There is a world that's coming to an end, but it's the Jewish world. Plain and simple. Right? And, and when that happens, it is cataclysmic. This is God, right? Who are his people? Who are his people? And when those people abandon him and he's going to destroy them in punishment, what do you think that's going to look like? A slap on the wrist? Or is it going to look like the stars are falling out of the sky? Is it going to seem like an earthquake? Well, actually, there is one Roman historian. See, I'm going to make all kinds of side comments like this because this is a subject I like a lot. My oldest son's name is Titus. I wanted to name him Titus Andronicus, who is the general who actually destroyed the temple, but my wife wasn't down with that. So we, of course, named him after Titus in the Bible. But Titus Andronicus was the general. And there was a Roman historian who is sitting on a hill, and he's overlooking all of this because he's recording all the great things the Romans are doing. And he wrote, as he said, it was as if stars were falling out of the sky. And that's what Jesus says is going to happen. Right? That's the kind of detail that he gets into here. And, and people who don't understand history, who, who don't understand the Old Testament any better than the scribes of Jesus' day, start cutting and pasting with the Olivet Discourse, talking about how we're going to get raptured out of this hellhole or something. Right? But this is Jesus. He didn't come to lose. Right? His, his program are victories cleverly disguised as defeats. Okay. I'm going to get off that rabbit trail now and get on board. <laughs> Mark chapter 13, verse 5 says this. 
And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Right here in the middle of this discourse, he says, don't let anyone lead you astray, which I find to be supremely ironic because this section is used to lead a lot of people astray. I mean, it goes to show that scribes really have a difficult time doing their job. Okay, let's see. What is the, all of the discourse about? Hmm, not leading people astray. Okay, well, now I'm going to start teaching about pre-trib, post-something, whatever, disappearing people. Which we will have made a lot of money on, by the way. Mark 13 and its corresponding portions in the Synoptic Gospels are used to lead people astray. Now, given my overview of Mark 11 and 12, what does it sound to you, honestly now, that Jesus is talking about? How does he feel about the temple? What is his judgment of it? What is his judgment of the people in it? It's not good, right? It's not good. Destruction is coming. Utter and total holocaust. Now, a reborn Israel will cross through the parted sea. This is God. This is Yahweh that we're talking about. Is he going to just come <laughs> right, and drop hot sulfur out of the sky and kill everybody? No, he, tri- right? he tried this. He tried this. In Noah's flood, he said, I, I repent of making man. I'm going to kill everybody. And then afterwards, he said, yeah, that, I'm not going to do that again. So from the very beginning, we have had this gospel hope from Genesis that he isn't going to just get fed up with us all and destroy us all. Right? And so is there hope for people in Israel? Of course, because this is God that we're talking about. There will be a mixed multitude who leaves on dry ground. There will be people manning an ark. The ark of Christ will carry his people forward and establish a new vineyard under new management, a new people with a new temple. But by the recurring references to the destruction of the temple in the context of Jesus' final conflict here, this is the last week of his life. He's taking on the authorities, and the context that, of that right, is a transfer of power. By killing him, they're transferring power away from themselves. They are bringing their system <laughs> to a charring hulk by killing Jesus. Right? This conflict he has with them is part of the judgment on them. It's not like Jesus came and the, and, and the rejection of him is what leads to, to it, to the destruction, to the punishment. They're rejecting him as part of the punishment. He's come and they've already stopped up their ears to the point where they cannot hear God. Right? His sheep hear his voice and follow him. Here's the shepherd calling out and only, the only people who come to him are the sheep. Right? And so their stopped-up ears, much like the pharaoh in Egypt, is part of the judgment, is part of the punishment. Remember the blind man. He knew that Jesus was going by him, and he didn't want to let Jesus get away before he was healed. Too many people wait too long to cry out for God's mercy. Mark 13, 1 through 2, deals with the destruction of the temple and seems designed to warn the disciples against four spiritual Danger. See, this isn't just about destroying the temple. If God is going to make a new temple, he needs to warn those, same pe- those new people from the dangers of the old temple, right? If the, if the people who had the old temple made a big deal out of the temple itself, out of the system itself, we are Abraham's sons, nothing could, right? We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, nothing can hurt us. They presumed. 
So before Jesus even begins to build a new temple, what he wants to do is warn the new people about presumption. That's crucial to the Christian walk. Presuming upon the Lord is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. So this is what he warns them of. In verse 2, he warns them of the danger of relying upon the outward symbols of religion. This is an echo of his attack on the fig leaf faith and the man-made traditions of Israel. The second danger in verses 5 and 6 is that of deception of false messiahs, echoing Jesus' exposition of Psalm 110 and his expanded Christology. Remember, they, didn't, they had questions about who the Messiah was. Right? He comes to the old people and he finds these errors that they're making and now he's warning very strictly his people not to fall into the same errors. Don't be confused when other people come in my name. If you know me, you will know those who I sent. If you know those who I sent, you will know me. This is what he says again and again. If you accept the person sent, you send the person who sent them. The third danger, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 13, is that of distraction by turmoil around us. Right? My bank account was overdrawn and my tire went flat and my prescription ran out and the pharmacy was closed and God hates me. Right? And then my sister, who hates God, saw some stupid thing I said on Facebook and reposted it, and now I look like a total idiot in front of all my family members. Just describe anyone's day. This didn't actually all happen to me. I'm just making this up. But these are the things that happen to us, right? I burned my tongue so badly at Starbucks the other day that I thought about cursing God. And that's all it takes, right? Everyone, maybe you're like, oh my gosh, that guy's the preacher. I am, and yes, that does happen to me. Like, is God really for us? And this is, this is what he's warning them about. People think, right, the, the Old Testament, right? Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than anybody else. And all the rich Israelites are like, what are you talking about? Now, you say that in America, and we're just as clueless. What do you mean it's hard for us to get? We go to church every week, right? I don't swear and stuff. I don't smoke. I mean, I'm such a good guy. Jesus is warning them. And, and, and ignoring the warning, is we do it too. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. To be forewarned is to be forearmed, as they say. This is why Jesus says, take heed. He says it in verse 5, verse, verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33. Take heed. Be careful. Watch how you go. The church is born into a climate of violence and a sense of impending catastrophe. But the, this is the way of the cross. Go back to, to chapter 8, 9, and 10 in Mark. And what is it all about? The way of, of God's disciples, the way of the cross, is the way of the kingdom. Right? Now, may, may you have some decent stakes and make some money along the way? Sure, it's possible. But don't confuse worldly gain for God's blessing. Don't, don't confuse worldly right, distressing circumstances as God's disfavor. Because the way of Christ is the way of the cross. The church was born into distress, right? How many people died in the first hundred years of the church? Now, this last century that we have had, there were more Christian martyrs than any time in history. Now, it, now if you look at that with gospel eyes, you think, man, we have got them on the ropes. We have got this world right where we want it. Right? If they're killing more of us than ever, amen, we're on top of it. But that's not usually how we look at things, is it? Right? 
What does he want us here? He says, don't watch CNN and think that that's the final word on who's in charge of this world. Or Fox News. I'll throw shade both directions. Right? You can't go on Twitter and then light your hair on fire. You've got to remember, Jesus is the Lord even of Twitter. Now, people are very confused about the which age is coming to an end in this story. In the Olivet Discourse, what, what world is ending? But there is a very important unifying phrase that you find beginning in verse 4 all the way down to the end, and it's these things. Okay, we're going to get a little more into it, but essentially the disciples look at the temple and they say, wow, that, look at that, Jesus. And he says, meh, it's not going to last. And they say, oh, when's that going to happen? And then he proceeds to tell them the things that will come at the end of the temple. And he says these things throughout. He doesn't, right, he doesn't, this is another mistake conservative, more conservative biblical people make, is that he talks about the end of the Jewish age and the end of the temple to a point, and then he starts talking about the end of the world. But these things that you find from the beginning of the, to the end of the chapter 13 unite all of the things that are going on. That's what the disciples want to know, right? They're not asking, when is this temple going to be destroyed? And then Jesus goes off on a discourse about, like, you know, the year 10,500 or something, when the Antichrist is in charge or whatever. That's not what he's talking about. There is a correspondence here from verse 4, verse verse 23, down to verses 29 and 30, when he says, whenever you see these things happening, and this generation shall not pass it until all these things take place. Okay, we're going to spend a lot of time on that verse. Everything that he's going to say for the next three weeks that I'm going to tell you, he says will happen before the generation that I'm talking to dies. Okay, and the last I checked, none of them were still alive. Even John, who lived a long time. John was like 110 or something. He kept boiling him in oil and he wouldn't die. He's not still with us. Okay, now, at transitional points, Jesus also says, take care. He says it in verses 5, 9, 23, 33. This is that whole take heed. He wants them to be warned. Now, Israel has not only rejected God, they, they are going to murder him. They are planning to murder him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shows up, and they are going to murder him. How do you think God the Father is going to respond to that? If it sounds like the world is ending, it's because it is. Now, it is the end of the world at the center of the Old Testament, from Abraham to the restoration after the exile, the Levitical system at the heart of the of the temple, which was God's house, all of it's coming to an end. Okay. So now we're going to turn to Mark chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to get this party started. This is what it says. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And this is true. Oddly enough, these are the little details that matter because Titus Andronicus burned this place to the ground. A large portion of it was made out of gold. And all that gold melted and drizzled down, drizzled down, drizzled down. And they couldn't, like, you know, this gold was actually gold. We shouldn't leave it here. 
And they're like, oh, well, what happened to it? Well, it melted, and it, and it dripped down into the foundation stones. It made giant sheets of gold. And Titus said, oh, well, let's get some crowbars. They probably needed something more than crowbars. And pry these giant rocks apart and get these sheets of gold. So I'm sure when Titus showed up, he, he wasn't in his mind thinking, yeah, I'm going to destroy this place down to the foundation stones. Circumstances, however, changed. And he ended up removing the foundation stones of the building, which is why it's not there anymore. This is why I named my son Titus. For the gold sheets. No, I'm kidding. Now, this complex, you've got to understand, all of it, the, the, the Mount of Olives where they're standing is a hill. There's a valley in front of them, and then there's another hill across from them. And on that hill is one of the most magnificent buildings ever built. Ever. Romans would come from, like, they would come from Rome all the way there to look at it because it's white stone and gold upon a hill. It's gorgeous. It looks like this big, giant, beautiful crown on top of this hill. And when you got, people like to sit on the Mount of Olives because you could see it from there. You could see all the natural beauty and this gorgeous building on top. The rabbis who hated Herod and his successors said this, he who has not seen Jerusalem in her splendor has never seen a desirable city in their life. He who has not seen the temple in its full construction has never seen a glorious building in his life. A mountain of white marble decorated with gold. Sounds nice, doesn't it? That's why they, they're, right? they're up on the Mount of Olives. And they're with the king. Jesus' disciples are all excited and they're looking out at what is going to be Jesus' throne soon. And they're like, man, isn't that nice? Because they've totally missed the point. Right? Because Jesus, right? God doesn't dwell in buildings made by men. Not anymore. We've come now in spirit and truth. I, right? He's building a new temple. And the people talking to him, the disciples, are the first stones in that new temple. And they don't even understand who they are. They're distracted from who they are by how magnificent this building looks. And isn't that a lot like us? We don't remember who we are in Jesus Christ, and we're distracted by a lot of the dazzly, shiny things in this world. Now, the prophet Haggai, when he was encouraging people to build the temple, he said this, Stone upon stone, restore the temple of the Lord. So when, they, when Jesus says here, he's quoting the Old Testament, and it's, it's easily missed. He's going to undo all the work of restored Israel. And this is the thing that, ca- that they cannot fathom in their own minds. He's going to undo the work of, of that prophet and all the, uh, all the Israelites who lived at that time. Now, Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple was fulfilled with awful finality in the destruction of Jerusalem by legions of Rome in A.D. 70. After fire had raged through the temple precincts, the Roman leader Titus ordered the de- demolition of the temple... Isolated fragments of the substructures can still be seen, but they're substructures. It's literally like the dirt has been moved away and we can see the basement now. Jesus' word of judgment is from Mike, uh, it echoes Micah chapter 3, verse 9 through 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall ever come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house 
a wooded height. Titus was a ruthless guy. And I think I've mentioned this before, but just as a parting gift, he actually got out bags of salt and they sowed salt into the earth so that nothing would grow there. Have you ever wondered, see modern pictures of Israel, and you think, that's the promised land? Have you ever thought that? You know, they talk about these abundant valleys, and you go there and you think, where? Well, thank you, Titus Andronicus. They're no longer abundant valleys. It's no longer the promised land. Now, Mark chapter 13, verse 3 through 4. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So this is what he's telling them. He's telling them how to discern when this destruction is going to happen. Why would he want them to know that? Why would he want them to know that? Other portions of the Old Testament, when they talk about um, the siege that's going to happen, talk about the fact that people eat their children. Right? They talk about the fact that you could sell a baby for a boatload of gold because everybody's so hungry they're going to eat it. Now, why wouldn't Jesus want them there for that? Because they're his people. Okay? He's saying these are the signs that these things are going to come so that you can run away. Because I want a remnant. I want people to survive. That's what he's telling them. Okay, you're going to know the end of the Jewish age is coming when you see these things. In the Gospel of Mark, a question from the disciples furnishes an opportunity to teach. And that's what he's teaching them. He's teaching them about all these things. From Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, it says this. When the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be accomplished. And he lists them. And that is what Jesus is referring to. These things are the things that are going to come at the end when the wrath of God meets his people. We're going to just go right on now. What, is, what are specifically the signs? Mark chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. He gives his disciples signs. Now, they're not clear enough for us to come up with a timeline, right? I can't, right? He's not saying in 66 AD this is going to happen, and in 68 AD this is going to happen. It's not that kind of list of signs. Nevertheless, some of these were precise enough to assure the survival of of the Jerusalem church. According to tradition, many were warned of the coming Roman legions and fled to a, a town called Pella. They actually fled, and the reason that they fled is because they remembered what Jesus said. Right? They were able to discern the times. There was a famine, and this is what Paul talks about in Philippians. He talks about it in the book of Corinthians. He's going around collecting a bunch of money to send back to Jerusalem. So the people in Jerusalem, when the famine came, and then they heard of rumors of wars from Rome, were like, oh man, you know, Jesus said we should get out of Dodge. And they got out of Dodge. And that's the only reason the church survived is they heeded the warnings of Jesus, and they were able to evacuate the location. Now, here's an, right? People are going to come in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what 
It, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, There are some who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There were literally people saying that the resurrection had already occurred and they were living in heaven. That's weird. But is that any weirder than people suddenly disappearing? Which is what the rapture is, right? My, my, I, I have sweet family members, and, and, and this is a trick you could play on them. If you were sitting in the living room and they went to the kitchen to get tea, you could hide in the closet, and they would think the rapture happened. And I am not making that up. And this stressed them out. This stresses people like It stresses them right out. Now, what kind of life is that? Right? <laughs> yeah. You come back out of the gas station, and it turns out dad had to go to the bathroom, but mom freaks out for a little bit because she thinks she missed the rapture. That's not exactly standing on a firm foundation of Jesus Christ, if you know what I'm saying. And, this is, and, and I do not blame these people, because people who should know better, who, who, who have been given the word of God, like the scribes in Jesus' day, are leading people astray with man-made traditions. <clears throat> I'm not going to go any further with that. I repent of ever hiding in the closet. That was, it was not a nice joke, but it worked every time. <laughs> now, Jesus says something very interesting here. This, this is another one I could have a whole sermon on this. He mentions birth pangs. Now, how many of you think that's really bizarre? Now, there's a couple of things here. One, um, sorry guys, the most painful thing that happens to a human being is actually giving a ba- having a baby. Okay, God agrees. So if he, in the Old Testament, when he refers to judgment coming on people, they refer to it as birth pangs, right? <laughs> because it's this kind of pain that begins inside of you that's kind of hard to describe that has to do with like your joints coming apart, right? It's this sort of like I'm, my body's being ripped apart. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 8. Wait for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Okay, the most painful thing you can endure is not the man flu. Sorry, guys. It's childbirth. Amen, sister. And so when the judgment of God comes on people, they call it birth pangs. And so Jesus is mentioning birth pangs here because what is going to happen? The judgment of God. But there, there's something deeper to it as well. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 16, it's about God taking Israel as his wife, and it says there that he finds her right, right after birth, covered in blood and water. And, and he watches her grow up and adorns her. She becomes this beautiful queen. Okay, now in, in um, Ephesians or Galatians, I'm sorry, it talks about men loving their wives as Christ loved the church and washing them with the word. And Jesus is going to present the the church as an adorned bride. Now, there there is a lot of deep stuff here. But God watches out for the church from birth to to adornment, to fullness, to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the final end of the whole story. But there's also something interesting here because Abraham married his sister, this is odd, but I'm going to just say, he was there when she was born. He oversaw her from cradle to grave. 
right? There, there's a kind of love and devotion and protection that is there from the beginning to the end of some women, and some women feel it in their lives because they have godly fathers who hand them off to godly husbands. And, and this is what he's taught. This is the master that we have. This is the Lord that we have. We have a Lord who is our Lord, who does protect us. This is the birth pangs he's talking about. And in, in Romans um, chapter 8, they talk about the creation being in birth pangs because of the fall. But in John chapter 19, verses 33 through 34, this, this is the one that really makes this, I think, clear. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now from the very beginning, this is, the church was born out of the side of Jesus Christ. And this is the reference to it. This is the birth pangs that they're talking about. Because, I don't know if you've seen a lot of births, I've seen six. There's a lot of water and there's a lot of blood. And the church, right, Eve was taken out of Adam's side. A rib was taken out. Jesus is stabbed in the side and blood and water comes out. That's very metaphorical. But Jesus is talking here about the fullness of time, the bride of Christ, and the kind of husband that he is. Because this story isn't about some nefarious, nebulous, confusing, metaphysical, sometime in the, in the far distant future. He's talking about himself. He's talking about the kind of husband he is. He's talking about the kind of king he is. He's talking about the kind of man he is. And the story of his people is what? That there was ever a time that he was not with them. Because they're about to go out, and what's going to happen? They're going to be thrown into in, in jail. They're going to be put before kings. They're, their own siblings and their own family members are going to turn their backs on them and turn them in. And at the time, the people who were first reading this were in the Mark's congregation in Rome. And what were they suffering? They needed to know that God, their king, Jesus Christ, didn't just ascend into heaven and forget about them. They needed to remember the whole story. And the whole story is that from the cradle to the grave, God is our God. It doesn't matter what you watch on the news. It doesn't matter what happens to you. Who is taking care of you at all times? Mark chapter 13, 9 through 12. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And if that's going to happen, who's for me? If the treachery of this world is going to get this close to me, who is going to be with me? Who is going to protect me? Who is going to provide for me? And remember, what did Jesus say about the resurrection? Our God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the living there is no circumstance that befalls you in which Jesus says, well, you know, I took you as far as I'm going to take you. I'll see you on the other side. You mean even when I'm in jail? Even when they're about to chop my head off on a beach in Egypt? Even when my own siblings turn me in? When my own parents turn me in to save their own necks? And, and his original readers were, you can't even imagine how comforting this was to them. Right? This is not about some... 
future distant tribulation. This is about if you're going to walk the way of the cross, there's going to be death involved. And if there's death involved, you need to know that somebody is there who's stronger than death, who's bigger than death. Mark chapter 13, verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It is significant that the followers of Jesus will be hated because of him. This is what Saul learned. Saul is going to Damascus. He's on the road. He sees a vision, and the man says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, who was Saul stoning to death? Stephen. How did, Je- how did Jesus understand that relationship? He looked at what they did to Stephen and he said, why are you doing this to me? My question is, what human being can do anything to him? Right? If he's in heaven and he's the king, can anybody throw a stone that high? No, but when you take one of his children who he loves, who loves him, and you put him here and we stone him to death, Jesus comes and says, why are you doing this to me? Now that's how united he is to you. Is that how united you feel to him? When these things happen to you, don't think that you're alone. Don't think that you're by yourself. Don't think that I've forgotten. Because when they happen to you, they happen to me. That is who we serve. That is the God that's on our side. Right? When you're struggling with depression, when you're struggling to pay for the bills, when you're struggling to take care of your kids, when you're wondering, right, I believe, help my unbelief, who is always there from you, for you? Who is always with you? And we want to take verses like this and we want to make them about nonsense movies that Nicolas Cage can star in. Yes, that's another knock on the rapture. Stupid movie. Is that what this is about? Nicolas Cage movies? Or is this about comforting people who need comfort? Strengthening people who need strength? Those who endure till the end, right? It's it nothing. Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God. And the very scary thing about that verse in Romans is that he goes on to list a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't sound very pleasant. He says, don't worry. Fire won't separate. Wait, what? Fire? I might get burnt. What? Angels won't separate. Angels? Huh? Pain won't. And, and you go through the list, you're like, wait a minute. This, I thought this was supposed to be comforting. All of those things you're telling me sound very horrible. Because in the midst of the horrible things that happen to us, in the midst of the horrible things that we do, who is always there? Who endured? Who forgives? Who remembers? He is a firmer foundation than anything that the old, the old covenant was built on, the old temple was built on, right? A bunch of Romans could come and dislodge the foundation of the temple with crowbars to get gold. That's not going to happen to your foundation, which is Jesus Christ. And this is the final word I have to say on this. Jesus is the greater prophet. That's what he said about himself. It's what we've been waiting for since Moses. The way that you can tell the difference between a good prophet, a real one, and a bad one, a false one, is whether their prophecy comes true. And so if Jesus makes all these prophetic words here, and it's about the end of the history, we're still waiting to find out if he's a liar or not. Does anyone comfortable with that? I'm not. 
The jury's still out on Jesus. We're still trying to figure out if he is who he says he is. Because that's what, if these things didn't come to pass, when he said they came to pass, he isn't who he says he is. If these things that he's describing didn't happen in some way in the generation that he's talking to, he is a no God. And so by all of this, he says, don't let people lead you astray. And it's, people undermine the, the gospel itself, the stories of the Bible themselves, by messing around with it in this way. Now remember, <laughs> this is a joke, right? We go to things like this, and we're trying to figure out if it happened or didn't happen, and either we don't understand it, or he didn't. Which seems more likely? And I want to know, what do you do? This is a question you have to answer yourselves. I would read this. Is, did these things occur? What do you have to do to find out if they did? Is he a true prophet? If he isn't, why are you here? You shouldn't be. If he is, why are you acting like the things in this world are going to do any harm to you? If he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he was going to do to that temple, which he did... Why are you presuming upon his grace thinking that your works are going to get you through or your, Bi- your Bible reading is going to get you through or your church attendance is going to get you through? Why are you presuming upon the Lord? Do you want to mess with this guy? But, right? Walk softly, carry a big stick. Seems like he's got a pretty big stick. Right? His stick was the Roman legions. They didn't even know they were working for him. That seems scary to me. Right? There are Christians in Iran right now, and this is difficult for us to understand, who are exuberant. Because our president, we can say many things, kills a person that should have died 20 years ago. And we all freak out like it's going to be the end of the world. And then they shoot down their own plane. And everyone in their country is very angry now. And they're no longer angry at us. Now, could God use a fool and the mightiest army in the world to bring another nation to its knees? Oh, it can, and it is. Because the third fastest growing church in the world is Iran. And it was three weeks ago. Imagine, imagine what the people there are, are, are going through now. Right? They're thinking, he still uses the foolish things of the world and the nations of this world for his purposes. It's not just a story. It's not something that happened 2,000 years ago. This is, he's teaching us these things now so that we can understand the world in which we live in now. He is not to be messed with. He is not going to, to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He is a firmer foundation. Build on that. But don't do it presumptuously. Do it with humility. Do it with repentance. Do it with boldness. Do it with courage. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your son. We pray, Lord God, as we go from here, we would consider these difficult things, that we would, um, with new eyes, go back and look at verses that we have come to know so well, that we would um, have fresh insight and new understanding, that we would draw closer to your son, that we would build firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that we would get rid of all, all of our idols, all of our presumptions, all of our Uh, man-made traditions, Lord God, and that we would stand firmly on Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for his continuing ministry, and we pray that you would be glorified in our lives this week. And amen.